I feel so confident now. You've made a complete bear out of me. Oh, yes, yes. Um, Fozzie. Yes, uh, sweetheart. Do you, do you think there's a... Yes, baby, say it. Well, even the slightest possibility that... Yes. You might want to go to my dressing room and have a cup of tea. You and me. Could I bring a friend? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring. Most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, I'm going to admit, I make the schedule... And I kind of, on purpose, tweaked it a little bit so that I would get to talk about Raquel Welch. You gave me Madeline Kahn. I'm not complaining about anything. <laughs> How are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. I am uh, glad the week is over. I've been consuming good fiction, and all is good. Good fiction is good. I think I'm going to watch tonight, I think I'm going to watch uh, Todd Haynes, who's a great filmmaker. He just released a new documentary about Velvet Underground today. Yes. It came out, and I think I'm going to check that out after we're done recording, because apparently... The new Halloween movie is garbage. By the time people listen to this, they'll already know that. And it'll be already be in the annals of garbage. This is a, um, a Feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, please check us out on social media. Well, not before we get started, but after this. At Lunatic Daring on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. LunaticDaring.com, where we have our watch list, our bibliography, and all of our episodes. We are currently going through The Muppet Show two episodes at a time, steamrolling our way right to The Muppet Movie in a couple of weeks. Are you excited? I am very excited. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. I'd never need an excuse to watch The Muppet Movie, but man, I'm going to have an excuse to watch it like three or four times. It's going to be great. Have your girls seen it yet? We did. We did watch it with the girls. Uh, when I was last home in Atlanta, we did kind of a family watch of it. I think they liked The Great Muppet Caper better. Hmm. Just based on their reaction to it, like they enjoyed it, but I think they like the Great Muppet Caper better. It's a little more, I don't know, there's fewer inside jokes in the Great Muppet Caper. <laughs> like a lot of the humor in the Muppet movie is, uh, I would say the Muppet movie is a little more adult mm-hmm. in its humor. And uh, but but it they, they really enjoyed it. I think today's a little bit of a whiplash episode. We got one, I think, really great episode and one that I was a little unimpressed by. I don't think I had major issues with either episode, but one's going to be forgotten a lot quicker than the other. Yeah, I would say. I would say so. So well, let's uh, let's not waste any time. Let's get things started. Let's get things started. It's the Muppet Show with our very special guest star, Raquel Welch. So like I said up top, I wanted to do this. Um, Raquel Welch, the guest star for this first episode, is special to me for a couple of reasons. One, yes, she is one of the Muppet Show guests that helped, let's say, that awakened young Chad to the world of women. Let's just put it that way. She was quite influential in that. You could probably understand why by watching it. I will say this was probably the most overtly sexual episode it flat that out I've is. seen so far. And two, she is the only Muppet Show guest star that I have ever met and worked with. Although there's a little asterisk there, but I'll explain later. But I have she's the only Muppet Show guest star that I've worked with. Joe Raquel... Tejada was born September 5th, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois. Her mother, Sarah Hall, was in was English, the daughter of an architect, 
and her father, Armando Carlos Tejada Urquizo, was an aeronautical engineer from Bolivia. She has a very interesting family, actually. For example, her cousin, Lydia Tejada, was the first female president of Bolivia and only the second female head of state in all of the Americas. Uh, Raquel had a younger brother named James and a little sister, Gail. When Raquel was two, the family up and moved to classy San Diego, California. She showed an early desire to entertain. She began studying ballet at seven, but had to quit 10 years later when an instructor told her that she just didn't have the body for ballet. At 14, Raquel started winning beauty contests. She won titles for things like Miss Photogenic, Miss Contour. She then ascended to Miss La Jolla, which is a a real rich neighborhood in in, uh, San Diego. Then she won Miss San Diego. And then she was eventually named Maid of California, which is basically kind of Miss California. And that was awarded at the state fair in Sacramento. This is all, by the way, this is all while she was still in high school. Uh, Her parents divorced around the time she graduated. After school, Raquel went to San Diego State College on a theater arts scholarship. And in 1959, when she was only 19, she married her, she married her high school sweetheart, James Welch. She did several local theater productions and landed a gig as a weather forecaster on KFMB, San Diego's CBS affiliate. She found juggling school, job, marriage, and then eventually two young children to be way too much, and she ended up dropping out of acting classes. Raquel and James split shortly after their daughter, Tawny, who's also a model, was born in the early 60s, like 1961, and were divorced by 64. After the split, Raquel took her kids to Dallas, where she made ends meet for a little while by modeling for Neiman Marcus and working as a cocktail waitress. But that didn't last long, because then in 63, they're in Los Angeles, and Raquel started looking for movie and TV work. Her first manager, an agent named Patrick Curtis, developed a plan to make her into a sex symbol. To hide her heritage and to keep her from getting typecast, Curtis suggested she stick with her married name Welsh and not Tejada. She had a couple of small movie walk-ons, did episodes of Bewitched and McHale's Navy, worked as a presenter on Hollywood Palace. According to Wikipedia, she was one of the many actresses who auditioned to play Marianne on Gilligan's Island. The first real featured role she had was in a beach film called A Swingin' Summer in 1965. After that, she got a little bit of attention from the studios. 20th Century Fox signed her to a seven-year non-exclusive contract to make five pictures. They wanted to change her name to, like, Debbie Welch, thinking that Raquel was too difficult to pronounce, which is just crazy talk by scared white people who studio execs always think the audience is dumber than they really are. Always. That's a a gold rule in Hollywood. Um, But she wasn't having it, so Raquel Welch it would be. She was cast as a lead in the 1966 sci-fi film Fantastic Voyage, where she plays a member of a medical team that is miniaturized and injected into the body of someone on a mission to save their life, which is pretty much the plot of the Joe Dante movie Inner Space, which was made 20 years later. Uh, the film was a hit and Raquel became a star because of it. I watched it today and it's stupid, fun, campy goofiness. In 1966, she also made One Million Years B.C. for Hammer Films in Britain. Uh, In that movie, her only costume was a two-piece deerskin bikini. This was, for obvious reasons, a very popular look, and the critics, mostly male of course, went nuts. The definitive look of the 60s, a marvelous breathing monument to womankind. And this one's kind of gross. Although she only had three lines in the film, her luscious figure in a fur bikini made her a star and the dream girl of millions of young moviegoers. The publicity still from the movie of her in the bikini, which you actually see hanging up in this episode, if you noticed, Mm -hmm. 
became a best-selling poster in the in the same line as Rita Hayworth and Farrah Fawcett. In fact, I believe that it is featured in the Shawshank Redemption as one of the sequence of pinup posters that, that Andy Dufresne right. uses to escape. Her and Curtis's plan worked beyond their wildest dreams. Raquel Welch was now an international sex symbol. She did a few films in Italy, one with Marcello Mastriani, one with gangster film legend Edward G. Robinson, who later said of her, I must say she has quite a body. She has been the product of a good publicity campaign. I hope she lives up to it because a body will only take you so far. Now, I know it may sound a little skeevy mentioning her figure all the time, but it's important to point out that her body was what made her famous. She was kind of like, yes, she was an actress, but she was as known as a pinup girl. Her 37, 24, 36 inch figure made her kind of the anti Twiggy, you know, our former Muppet Show guest whose famous figure could fit through a mail slot. She's kind of the opposite of that. Mm. Um, this is a big part of who Raquel is. And even when performing on the Muppet Show, her status as, as the movie, as the show even says, as a sex goddess is just it's part of who she is. Over the course of her acting career, her body was often used against her. She got cast as blown up Barbie dolls, according to her. And critics were often dismissive of her performances, but praised her figure in the same breath. She was asked by Fox to be in Valley of the Dolls, but Raquel wanted to play Neely, not Jennifer, which is the role she was being offered. And she said no. Patty Duke eventually took the part. In 1967, she appeared as Lust Incarnate in the Cook and Moore comedy Bedazzled. Morning, Mr. Moon. Morning. I've brought you all something. To eat. Thank you. It's so hot in here. Whew. Would you help me with my buttons? I seem to be off thumbs this morning. She did a Western with Jimmy Stewart and Dean Martin, which I was actually watching this afternoon, Bandolero. Stewart, who always held himself up as a beacon of American Puritanism and Republicanism, said, I think she's going to stack up all right. Real subtle, Jimmy. She did a film with Sinatra, worked with Jim Brown, Burt Reynolds. Her most controversial role was in 1970s Myra Breckenridge, where she played the film's transsexual heroine. Oh, Mr. Loner. <laughs> You're the only one I have left to turn to. You see, Myra didn't leave me a penny. Um, no insurance? Safety deposit box, maybe. No. I'm absolutely alone. And penniless. <laughs> Mr. Loner, Gertrude, Myron's mother, said to me with her dime bread, Myron, and you too, angel girl, if anything should ever happen to me, you just go to your Uncle Buck and you tell that son of a bitch, well, I'm quoting now verbatim, that that property in Westwood was left to us jointly by our father. And you tell that bastard that I've got a copy of that will and I want my share to go to you, Myron, because that property must be worth a good million dollars by now. It was her play to be seen as a serious actress and maybe a, a grab for one of those little gold men. Neither happened, though, um, although they did have her present at the Oscars several times. Playboy named Raquel the most desired woman of the 1970s. Throughout the decade, she made a good number of movies, some good, some okay, some real bad, and a TV special called Raquel with an exclamation mark. In 1976, she hosted Saturday Night Live, on which she was hit on not only by Chevy Chase, but by some surly puppets from the faraway land of Gorch. 
Well, hi there. You're the Muppets, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. It is indeed us. <laughs> oh, I've always thought you people were so lovable. You hear that, Scred? <clears throat> uh, that's, that's true, lady. Yeah, we're, we're known far and wide for being lovable. Oh, gee, that lady is Raquel Welsh. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, you, uh, you sure are Raquel Welsh. Uh, all over, aren't you? Mm. Mm. Feels like Raquel Welch, too. <clears throat> Careful. Uh, you know, um, <clears throat> you know, we Muppets are, are uh, very, very lovable. I mean, mm. uh, Relax, uh, baby. <clears throat> you know, matter of fact, uh, until you've made it with a Muppet, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 wait a minute. You know, lover. you know what I'm saying. Wait a minute, lover. Are you talking about making love to me? <laughs> because, because, uh, you guys are just puppets, right? I mean, uh, you don't even exist below the waist. <laughs> I mean, all you are is just the top half of a person, right? Yeah, but, So that kind of makes you just a lot of talk, all talk, right? Well, I'm pretty cool with my hands. She never got a ton of praise for her acting. Let's let's just get it out there. She was never considered a great actress. I haven't seen a lot of her work, but it doesn't seem like that's necessarily her fault. She lost the role of Alexis Carrington on Dallas to Joan Collins. Very famous role. She was supposed to be in the adaptation of John Steinbeck's Cannery Row, but was fired weeks before shooting for allegedly being difficult to work with, showing up late, skipping uh, rehearsals, and was replaced by Deborah Winger. Raquel sued and in the trial proved that there had actually been a conspiracy amongst the filmmakers to falsely blame her for the film's budget problems and delays. That was a very troubled production. And she was awarded $10 million in restitution by the judge. She kept acting, but her career really started to peter out by the late 80s. Uh, she did some TV dramas, had a cameo in Naked Gun 33 and a third, was on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, did Victor Victoria on Broadway, played an extremely temperamental version of herself on the classic Seinfeld episode, The Summer of George. Aren't you Raquel Welch? You know who I am. Now, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. I just wasn't moving my arms. <laughs> That's it. You're going down. <laughs> Cat fight. In 2001, she appeared in the Reese Witherspoon vehicle, Legally Blonde. More on that in a minute. She did some more TV films. Most recently, she appeared in 2017's How to Be a Latin Lover, directed by the state's Ken Marino. For many years, she did a one-woman nightclub act in Vegas. She won a Golden Globe for her role in 1974's The Three Musketeers. She has also released beauty and, and fitness books. And in 2007, at the age of 67, was selected as the face of the MAC Cosmetics Icon Series beauty line. Her politics lean conservative-ish, and she says that's due to her Midwestern upbringing. Uh, she posed in Playboy, but was not nude, uh, nor ever was in print or in film. This was a point of contention for Hugh Hefner, but he relented because, well, she was who she was. And you also have to remember, this is the important thing when you watch Raquel Welch on screen. Raquel Welch is an international sex symbol, but Joe Tejada was not. What I do on screen is not to be equated with what I do in my private life. Privately, I am understated and dislike any hoopla, she would later say. I was not brought up to be a sex symbol, nor is it in my nature to be one. The fact that I became one is probably is probably the loveliest, most glamorous, and fortunate misunderstanding. She is currently 81. And this is going to surprise you, Nick. Like I said, I got a Raquel Welch story. 
I couldn't have seen that one coming. So 2000, I'm guessing sometime late 2000, I get a call. So when, um, when you make a movie, you have your production assistants, right? They're kind of the, the all-purpose gophers on a set. And uh, a film carries a set amount of them, right? Say your movie has four production assistants that are on for the entire show. What they will do is when there are bigger days, say days that involve a lot of extras or days that involve a lot of stunts or large locations, they will bring in what they call additional production assistants, right? You come in for a day, a week, a month, and you're just helping bolster the bolster the, the production um, and helping them out with, you know, uh, situations that are larger than their average day. It's also it, that's also the way the production assistants make money in between the big gigs, right? You take a day here, a week there, a day there, a couple of weekend there. So I got a call to come do four days, three or four days. I don't remember three or four days on a movie called Legally Blonde. I didn't know anything about it. Found out it was a Reese Witherspoon thing. So I got to the set and I think it was about halfway through my first day. I got called into the trailer by the um, assistant directors. One of them. I don't remember which one. I don't want to put this on anybody. And they said to me, look, Raquel Welch is in this movie. And I said, oh, that's neat. And they go, she's a nightmare. She's a pain in the ass. And I go, okay. She's a real diva. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to feed you to her. We need someone. This is her last week of shooting. We need someone to meet her when she gets to the set, walk her into set, make sure she gets onto set. Kind of, she has an assistant, but kind of be her handler during these next couple of days. And we've decided it's going to be you because if she burns you out, you're only here for two days anyway. And they're like, and we don't want her going after any of our regular people. So we figured you're expendable. How are you going to argue with that? Right. I can, I can take, I've been around divas before. I can take a hit, you know? So I go to the set the next day. I think she only came in the second two days I was working. Her town car pulls up to the curb. We're shooting at the, at the courthouse. That's why I was there is they needed more people. They were doing the finale of the movie, which takes place at a courthouse. She pulls up in her town car and this woman gets out of the car. And she's unmistakably Raquel Welch. She is the woman in the fur bikini from the poster. She is the woman who danced with the spider on the Muppet show. She is Raquel Welch. She's 61. She looks fantastic. And I say, Miss Welch, my name's Chad. I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm here to make sure that you get to set okay. I'm, and I'm just waiting for the wait, waiting for the hard part. She smiles. She grabs my cheek, pinches it, and goes, Aren't you adorable? For the next two days. I was her favorite pet production assistant. She was nothing but sweet to me. She called me Chad, darling. I think it's the only time in my life my father has been jealous of me. Was when I told him I just spent two days with Raquel Welch, who thought I was cute. So it was funny to listen to that clip from SNL, because what happens right after that is Chevy Chase comes out. And Chevy Chase is someone who is also notoriously difficult to work with, right? And it's funny that I've worked with both of them and both of my experiences with both Raquel Welch and Chevy Chase were wonderful, lovely experiences with people that I really enjoyed hanging out with. (laughs) But I understand they're not like that for everybody. But that's my Raquel Welch story. The one Muppet Show person, the one Muppet Show guest star that I ever actually worked with and spent any time with. I'm not going to vouch for her, her performance when I wasn't her her behavior when I wasn't around. She was very sweet to me. I was 24. I had baby, I had, you know, baby face and cute cheeks and she thought I was adorable. So it it was a weird experience to me, like I said, because this, this episode was so kind of like ingrained in me, especially that her opening number, which you can, you can probably guess why, but but her opening number was very, um, 
It's something I've never quite forgotten. Anyway, this is Muppet Show episode number 311 with special guest star Joe Raquel Tejada. Produced in late April 1978, premiered November 1978, directed by Philip Kazan. Oh, Raquel Welch, 30 seconds to curtain, Miss Welch. So our cold open, Nick, is going to just lay it all out there ahead of time, right? Mm-hmm. Sco- Scooter comes in and Raquel is reciting Shakespeare to herself. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain upon the players beneath. Oh, changing your image, huh? Yes, well, I was toying with the idea. Well, you do what you want, Miss Welch. On this show, you don't have to dress up in any of those scanty, revealing costumes. Oh, thank you, Scooter. Well, not unless you really want to. And then Quango the Gorilla, Dr. Teeth, Floyd, Gonzo, and the Green Freckle all show up the do- show up at the door and beg. Oh, please want to. So, like you said, this is the horniest episode of The Muppet Show ever. We've had moments in, epi- er, in past episodes, but there's the energy of this episode in particular is just like, we're selling one very specific thing here. Well, I mean, and and like I said, it's in, what's interesting about her is that was she considered that kind of her job. You know, like it wasn't necessarily who she was, but it was her job. Her job was. Like, yes, she was an actor, but she's also just sex symbol was part of her. That's it's on her resume, you know, but this is going to set off right away. The fact that the the men, the male Muppets on this show are very excited. Now, when they shot this, this also happened in real life. When they shot this episode, Jim Henson said that they got a lot of visitors from the neighboring studios. Lots of crew members from neighboring productions would swing by just to see what was going on this specific week for some reason. We got our um, Muppet Show theme. Flowers come out of Gonzo's trumpet because he's his damn dirty hippie. Um, <laughs> we get a shot of Beauregard in, in the opening. It's a little joke where he's hitting the head with a sandbag. Beauregard is just kind of like now part of the show. They're even calling him by his name, but we have not been introduced to him and he's not the janitor yet. Hmm. I think he's been in this one and the, the one before this one pretty prominently. So then Kermit comes out to introduce Raquel, and guess who's jealous, Nick? <laughs> um. Tonight, we are delighted to have the one and only Miss Raquel Welch. <laughs> Pity we can't book an important guest star on this show. <laughs> what, what are you saying, Piggy? Tonight, we have an internationally acclaimed actress, singer, dancer, and one of the sexiest ladies alive. You got that every night, frog. Um, so she's not too happy about Raquel being on the show, but all the men are very, very happy. Kermit starts to introduce Raquel as being curvaceous and desirable. The tantalizing, the desirable. Oh, the chief. What now? She's changing her image. And Scooter comes in and tells her that uh, she's changing her image. And so Kermit does a 180. Is like, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one of cinema's leading dramatic actresses, the very erudite Miss Raquel Welch. Which is then immediately struck down. <laughs> Well, actually, this I have two questions about the following bit. One can lead in, one can... This is the number for me, so go ahead. Well, that's one of the things I was thinking about, is if this is formative for you, and I have to compare the age for the guy that directed Wild Wild West, but is this where his spider thing started? He's much older than me, so I don't know. I don't have a spider fetish well, that you know of. I, I mean, I'm not kink-shaming, as long as everything's yeah. relatively safe, sane, and consensual. But <laughs> Now, Raquel is most famous... At this point, or one of the things she's most famous for, of course, is her role in 10,000 BC. Um, that's where the fur bikini comes from. And 
that's a prehistoric story. The only the reason she only has like three lines of dialogue is because she's playing a cave woman. They're kind of playing on that a little bit where they give her this dress. <laughs> I don't know. It's a kind of a shredded dress. It looks like something that a showgirl would wear, but like, yeah, like with the, the sequins and such. But Raquel comes out in an outfit that most definitely does not change her image. She sings a song called Baby, It's Me. Baby, It's Me is a title track to a 1977 Diana Ross album. She actually does two Diana Ross songs in this episode. So maybe she's a fan. Um, it wasn't really a hit single, if a single at all. I couldn't find anything about it, but it's definitely a Diana Ross song. You got the shake and I got the shimmy. You got the take and I got the gimme. And I don't want to go, but baby, you sent me. You want it all and I want to give it. You are the dream and I want to live it. And I don't want to go, but baby, you sent me. But then she also dances with a giant black spider. What'd you think of this? I mean, I was looking at it because I I think that's a full body Muppet, right? That is our friend Graham Fletcher, Hmm. the Fletcher bird, and probably his most famous Muppet show moment is playing the spider. He did a really good job. Um, He does an amazing job. There's (laughs) a, a slight callback to Swine Lake with Less Nightmare Fuel in that you see him sort of flop down from on high. Uh, but the thing, the thing that stuck with me after this, and I'm going to need you not to judge me too harshly. She throws a club at the end of that and it it doesn't seem like it's a scripted throw. She just lets it go. (laughs) And I'm wondering if she hit anyone with that. (laughs) Like Dave Goals is just stage right. And he's just like, oh, wow. I get to look at Raquel Welch and I have a concussion, but worth it. Love is a storm that goes on forever. The more that it rains, the better the weather. It's it's a bizarre. I'm not going to say it's not bizarre. It's very bizarre. The spider makes it very bizarre. I think the spider is what makes it um, slightly less exploitative than it could be, you know. But uh, as a kid, you know, man, you you don't know why you like watching certain things, but you do. (laughs) And I liked watching this as a kid. And it took me many more years before I knew why. That's fair. I don't. The song is somewhat suggestive, I think. It's not like an innocent song. There's some suggestive lyrics in the song. The thing is, with well, with the way that they set the tone for the episode and Raquel's, I guess you'd call it her mystique in general, you don't have to do a lot of work for people to fill in blanks. She was not particularly known as a singer, but I think she does a fine job. Yeah, she did good. Um, and uh, and and I think, but I think you hit it. Uh, Graham Fletcher, I think, just kills it as the spider. Oh yeah, he was like when he's doing his little sh- his shuffling and everything. Like I can't imagine. Um, my wife and I were trying to figure out like what were actually his arms and what weren't. <laughs> you know, I think the front two and then the the middle ones. Um, and then they're all kind of connected by rods and strings. Backstage, uh, Kermit and Floyd are watching. <laughs> so maybe they took the club to the face and didn't even notice. And um, Ooh, perfect. Uh, uh, I thought she was going to change her image. Well, well, she might be changing her image, but you wouldn't want her to change the rest of that. Kermit's a dirty old frog. We love Kermit. <laughs> they are. Every man in this is like, I'm not going to say they're awful. She's a beautiful woman. <laughs> like, it, it, you know, it, and again, international sex goddess as they say in this so like it's understandable they even have the 10,000 bc poster hanging up backstage you know but uh, all the men are very very into raquel 
something very interesting about this backstage scene in particular is we've got two parallel one's going to be more quote unquote substantive and they kind of come together eventually. But the backstage story for this week is Fozzie trying to get his eat, pray, love on and be a more confident bear and be more assertive. Yeah. Then there's just all the guys gawking at Raquel Welch. And the thing is someone's priority was definitely going to be everyone looking at Raquel Welch. You remember them making the comments about her more than you'll remember a lot of Fozzie's story. And they do dovetail. How? What do you think it would be like to be in group with Fozzie? Where's Fozzie? He's supposed to be on stage. Oh, he must be late getting back from group. Group? Fozzie went to group therapy? Is he just trying to get people's love the whole time? Just trying to get their attention? That's one way to go. There's also, like, not him trying to get people's attention, but him being blissfully unaware of the circumstance because the situational awareness is interesting. And then there's a third circumstance where you realize that, like Raquel and Bowie, that this is just a job for Fozzie, and Fozzie's actually super down-to-earth and very sad. <laughs> so uh, Kermit's wondering where Fozzie is, and Floyd says Kermit, Fozzie's in group therapy. And Fozzie shows up, and the first thing he tries to do is what every kid who saw Star Wars as a kid has tried to do, <laughs> which is make doors open with your mind. Open up doors! <laughs> These doors will swing open to the force of my will alone! Okay, I'll open the doors. And that doesn't work. So then Fozzie opens the door himself, but he opens the door because he wants to. It's very important because Fozzie has learned to be assertive and confident to ask for what he wants. Let's see how long that lasts him. He's a complicated bear. It's interesting. Like you kind of have to already know Fozzie because <laughs> he, he walks into this pretending to be confident. So you have to kind of already know that he's not. But I guess it's kind of implied. Kermit introduces Gonzo, and he calls him the opposite of Raquel Welch. <laughs> That's fair on multiple levels. It's mean, but fair. Um, and uh, <laughs> as he says, in contrast to Raquel Welch, in addition to every man, woman, and child on Earth, uh, Gonzo sings a song called Jamboree. you can with the things that you see to make life a jamboree and i see cows playing cellos with bananas where their horns should be and i see flags being waved by ducks in buckets and pigs drinking lemon tea written by uh, muppet show music consultant Larry Grossman and Frank Oz. Uh, the only other song Frank has credit on was the rhyming song from a couple episodes ago. Here's my question with this song. Did Frank and Larry just wander through the workshop and write down stuff they had and then found a way to make it rhyme? The one note that I put down was surrealist painting, because the thing is, with the Muppets, with a lot of the things that you'll see constructed, the visuals would support a surreal surrealist theme, even if the song doesn't necessarily do so. But everything... Like every lyric in this juxtaposed images that didn't necessarily go together, so it could have become a dolly painting. Yeah, uh, but it's very literal. It is, but it's still... That's the thing, though, is those paintings that we would be referring to are static things, whereas this, it's lived-in surrealism, I guess, which, you know, Gonzo singing the songs, that makes absolute sense. I just got this image of, like, Frank going through the workshop, going like, all right, we got a cow, we got some ducks. <laughs> Can we find a rhyme for that? What if we put a hat on it? I don't know. We'll, we'll figure it out. 
Grossman is just taking forever to get the song in, and Frank goes in. He's like, cool, so we're behind schedule. I'm going to help you finish this. Let's take a walk. jamboree it's a really fu- it's a really fun song yeah it's a good I, I think it's a solid number so then kermit goes to fozzy and is like fozzy it's your time for your number fozzy pushes aside a paper off the desk just so he can slam the desk and go nope <laughs> i will not but it's just the fact that he took the he took the moment to clear the desk before he slammed it made me laugh so we've justifiably given Kermit a little bit of flack for some of his behavior recently, but seeing Kermit immediately just support Fozzie as Fozzie's going through whatever Fozzie's going through and being like, okay, you're not doing your bit. We'll make it work. That's that's uh, that's somewhat soul-serving, though, because Fozzie's not very good. Yes, but still, <laughs> like, he's not doing it like a screw you anyway kind of thing. He's just like, this is what you want to do. This is what you want to do. We're going to do the other thing. Well, Fozzie has decided that he no longer wants to buy friends with laughter. And so he's not going to go out and tell the jokes. And, uh, and, uh, he says, I like the line there. He says his problem, my problem is my need to tell jokes. And Floyd says, that's our problem too. Um, Floyd is becoming kind of an agent of chaos. Floyd is absolutely a chaos Muppet. Due to the indisposition of Fozzie Bear, there will be no comic monologue on this show. And Fozzie here is more cheering than he's ever heard in his entire life. <laughs> And he runs back and goes, they want me. And uh, he runs out. <laughs> and uh, the best line in the episode comes where Kermit says. Uh, but you were supposed to meet your true self. I just met him. What's he like? He's shallow, insecure, and needs to buy friends with laughter. <laughs> Everything he just said he wasn't. But Kermit's already got to introduce the next act. So Fozzie doesn't have time. This is actually one of my favorite iterations of this particular sequence that I've seen since the show started. About the dance? Yeah. yeah. Um, just because the the entire premise is that everyone's stealing Fozzie's jokes as he's up there. But it doesn't feel... Sometimes we've seen amalgamated sketches where they're just at odds and there's a lot of friction there. This is right. a seamless one. It's I, I think it's probably the strongest at the dance that I've seen. Yeah, so they so it turns so at the dance is next, but Fozzie ain't done yet, and so he 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 pushes his way into at the dance. Did you hear the one about the nut who joined the army? Sure, they made him a colonel. (laughs) (laughs) That old chestnut. (laughs) Hey, hey, you just cut that out, you pigs. Hey, speaking of pigs, what do you get when you cross an Eskimo and a pig? Oh, that's easy. You get a polar boar. Um, this is, I believe, our last appearance of Fleet Scribbler. He's one of the dancers in this. I don't know if we're ever going to see him again. But uh, but there's like chopped livers there. And there's two monks that are dancing together, which opens all sorts of questions. Those are the same guys that we saw in the train station, didn't we? Yeah. Yes, they were hobos before. <laughs> and now they're. They're aesthetics. But you're right. I thought this was a very funny at the dance. We get our UK spot. You know, we like to talk about Bunsen Honeydew being the most sadistic character on the show, but that really isn't true, Nick. Oh, no, no. Bunsen's still absolutely the most sadistic person on the show. No, Marvin Suggs is the true monster. He's abusive, but there's <laughs> like, how do I explain? Um, 
Marvin Suggs is more like Joe Jackson. Not my dad, Joe Jackson, but Michael Jackson, Joe Jackson. Your dad's name is Joe? Yes. It's dope. Bunsen is... Yeah. Oh, I I know. Yeah, I mean, I, I know. I just... Marvin Suggs is... Uh, sorry, we have a UK spot. And... Uh, <laughs> Kermit's interviewing Marvin Suggs. Tonight I'll be talking with one of your favorite acts, Marvin Ow. Suggs and the Muppaphones. Uh, excuse me, Marvin. I, I know you're rehearsing, but uh, could I talk to you for a few minutes? But of course, Mr. Kermit. Anything. Take a four. Five. Ow. Four. He wants to get to know Marvin a little better as he says, uh, you know, yeah, we every once in a while we like to talk to some of the performers on here and get to know them better. They've done this like twice. Like they did it with Animal in like season one. I think that's the last time they did this. So it's not like Kermit's like, we do this every once in a while. No, you do not. <laughs> once every three years we do this. And uh, he interviews Marvin. Marvin is, I, I think, one of Frank's, uh, I think Frank's biggest character. As usual, Mr. Oz is chewing, is eating every bit of scenery, every bit of scenery they put in front of him. And he has a conversation and he finally asks the big question, does it hurt? <laughs> when he hits the Muppaphones. And the Muppaphones very quietly go. Uh, is Marvin still here? Right here. Uh, no. <laughs> They're so shell-shocked. Oh. Like, I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> no, no, no. This is, this is exactly my sense of humor. But I'm also realizing that if Marvin Suggs were to be done in a modern context, he'd probably have to be played by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Just so people would like him? Kind of, yeah. But also... <laughs> Just, I, I can see Matt Miranda chewing that up exponentially. Yeah, Frank definitely just just rips this to shreds and does a great job. But uh, Marvin insists he's not cruel, but he, he definitely seems cruel. He's got that mallet ready. Well, it's got uh, the whole time. He's ready to go at all times. It's like the back of his hand. But the other thing about this sketch, though, is when Kermit asks him, "Are yes. these are these the original Muppaphones?" Oh no. I have to replace them every two or three months. They go flat. Uh, you mean they get off key? No, flat. Ow! <laughs> like little pancakes. Thank you! Uh, yeah, well, uh, what happens to them then? I don't think you want to know. I do not think you want to know. <laughs> like, whoa! Hold on now. He sends them to a farm upstate. I guess, man. <laughs> so we go backstage and Fozzie's bummed out. Fozzie's in another one. It's kind of like with Milton Berle. So so thus far, the people that Fozzie has been scared to meet are Milton Berle and Raquel Welch. So he uh, he's scared to meet Raquel. He's worried he'll embarrass himself in front of her, which, to be fair, it's a good call. And uh, Scooter comes by and he's like, oh, man, but she's great. She gave me a kiss on the cheek. Everything's great. And Fozzie starts kind of talking to himself or whatever. And Raquel comes from her dressing room and she hears him talking. And she says, but Fozzie, you're the reason I wanted to be on the show. I wanted to perform with you. And she holds him close in a way that made every non-bear in America jealous. And she sings a song called Confide in Me. Now, this is also a Diana Ross song, also from that same album. So I wonder if Raquel like came in with that record and was like, I sang this in the shower. This is what I'm going to do. Take it slow, years ago, any friend would recommend the starlight show, on a night like this, I insist you 
Intel, you are terrific. Or something was someone was just like bumping in the office a bunch or something that week. I, I don't know what, but there's two songs off this one Diana Ross album in this episode. And she sings a very sweet, sensual song to Fozzie Bear, who gets very riled up. Yeah, his ears are probably pretty red by the end of that one. <laughs> he gets so riled up. I mean, you know, you can't blame him, but still, he gets very, very excited. What I love is this is a twist. This is a sexy twist on the tropes we've seen before, right? On the uh, Fozzie, usually Fozzie or Gonzo is down in the dumps, and they get a song from the guest star that brings their confidence back, right? We've seen this before. And so at the end of it, Fozzie's ready to fight the world. Oh, Raquel! Oh, I feel so confident now! You've made a complete bear out of me! Oh, yes! Yes! Um, Fozzie... Yes, uh... sweetheart! What's the line from Black Panther? Don't freeze. I never freeze. And uh, he asks if he can bring a friend. Completely missing the point. There are three jokes I could make right now, and none of them are podcast appropriate. Actually, I don't think Fozzie misses the point, and that's what's funnier about it. Fozzie gets the point. There are three jokes I could make right now, <laughs> and none of them are podcast appropriate. I kind of want to tell them just so you can hear them and cut them later. But it ends with Fozzie um, when being faced with actual sexuality backing down from it. So uh, uh, we go to the chef. I never freeze. And he plays a very classic uh, Swedish chef bit where he plays where he's going to make chicken in a basket pretty easy to see where this is going you got a chicken you got a basketball hoop the entire time i was watching this i was wondering when gonzo was going to come in and, de and defend the chicken gonzo's been neglecting his his duties even gonzo's into raquel we saw <laughs> we saw that in the opening we saw that in the opening and then there's something that's kind of apropos of nothing but still funny uh, after, after the chef shoots the the chicken for two points fozzy He's got all his confidence. He comes to he comes to Kermit and he's got a sheet of paper. And he's like, I just wrote the best joke of my damn life. Kermit, in the history of show business, there has never been or will there ever be a joke that's funny. Hey, read it. Go ahead, read it. Ah. Kermit just looks over his shoulder, reads it and just looks at him and goes, it's not funny. Don't really know what it has to do with anything, but it was funny. We just get to see confident Fozzie. Yeah, it's confident Fozzie for a minute. <laughs> for, for just a second. Then, of course, we get the showdown we've been waiting for, which is Miss Piggy Lee versus Miss Raquel Welch. Thank you, Miss Piggy, but I understood that you weren't too, uh, well, happy about me being on the show. Where did you ever get that idea? Well, believe me, I understand. After all, it is your show, and I'm just a guest here. Oh, Raquel, Raquel, Raquel. The burdens of being an international sex goddess. Yes, well, I suppose. It must be nearly as tough for you. And uh, yeah, they do a little bonding, Raquel and Piggy do, right? They're pretty much the same thing. I, I feel like Raquel might be easier to get along with. Uh, it's probably, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, it's probably a tie. <laughs> Good <laughs> but, to know. Um, yeah, so they, they get along for a minute, and then Piggy finds out that Raquel's doing a solo number. And Piggy is not happy about that. I don't know why. The guest star always kind of does a solo number at the end. Not if Piggy's feeling threatened. I mean, it's not like Annie Sue's doing it. Yet. So then uh, Raquel comes out for her final number. She's in this kind of white pantsuit thing that still manages to deliver the appropriate amount of cleavage. And she comes out to sing I'm a Woman for her solo. Uh, it was a Peggy Lee song from the 1960s. It was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. And once you listen to the lyrics, it's kind of not shocking that this song I Am A Woman was written by men. I can wash out 44 pairs of socks and have them hanging out on the line. I can start an iron two dozen shirts before you can tap them on. Well, I can scoop up a great big dipper 
full of lard from the drippings can. <laughs> Throw it in the skillet, go out and do my shopping, and be back before it melts in my pan. Yes, It's uh, very empowering. <laughs> Is it? No. <laughs> Not at all. So she comes out on stage and she starts to sing I'm a Woman and then Piggy in a, in a, in a matching outfit how she got it, I don't know. And a matching outfit runs on and turns it into a duet. But this song, I Am A Woman, which seems like it should be this empowering female anthem, is about how good they are at doing chores, Nick. That's kind of the song, right? More or less. I kind of watched my wife as we went through the song kind of go like, huh? Huh? That's all we're good for? <laughs> like, it, like She was very kind of, because it's just like a list of domestic things. It's presented like a girl boss song. She's got a very particular set of skills. It's weird because, like I said, it's in the shell of, you know, I am woman, hear me roar type of thing. It's in that shell, but the actual lyrics are very, I mean, probably appropriate for the time. I mean, that's not, that never really went away, though, because if you think about it, half the songs that have song strong hooks, people aren't going to care what the lyrics are or they're not going to think about it too closely. Numbers, pay the bills, and still end up with some. Uh, I got a $20 gold piece, says there ain't nothing I can't do. I can make a dress out of a food sack. You got what? I said I can make a dress out of a food sack. <laughs> what do you do with a food sack dress? Well, honey, I can make anything look good. We, we would call them regressive today, but at the time they were just, you know. They were probably still regressive then. <laughs> probably. It's still a fun number, though. Yeah. No, like the, the choreography, the, the presentation, the interplay between Piggy and Raquel yeah. is, is solid. We get to the end of the show and Kermit determines that uh, Raquel may not have changed her image, but she's definitely changed the Muppets image. Which is true, because again, this is the sexiest episode of The Muppet Show I can think of. Mm. Guests aside, and no, she will not be my number one guest star for the season. If anyone wants to accuse me of that ahead of time. We've got to break that pattern at some point. I, and I will. But I really like this episode. It's a good episode. It's a solid episode. I think she does a really good job on it. Got some great numbers. Got some very great Fozzie stuff, which you know I'm a sucker for. Frank was in rare form on this episode. You know, man... Season three, Frank's all over the place, you know? Mm. Piggy's the star now, and if Piggy's the star, Frank's the star. Our guest star tonight is the wonderful and very talented Mr. James Coco. But first... Nick, who the hell is James Coco? Very good question. James Coco, born March 21st, 1930, in Little Italy in Manhattan, to Felice, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, Les Coco, who was a shoemaker, and Ida Detest Les Coco. Um, he would shorten his name to Coco, obviously. But he started acting straight out of high school. He transferred to the Herbert Bergorf uh, studio, which was one of the early acting studios in New York. But he was also overweight, and he started balding pretty early, so he... He was given a lot of character and bit parts. Um, he debuted on Broadway in 1957 in a, a play called Hotel Paradiso. But he, he received his first real recognition for a play called The Moon and Yellow River, which was off-Broadway. He won an Obie Award for this performance. 
he had roles in Ensign Pulver in 1964 and The Patty Duke Show in 1965 before partnering with playwright Terrence McNally in the 1968 off-Broadway double bill play Sweet Eros and Witness followed by another play called Here's Where I Belong. They tried to adapt East of Eden by Steinbeck, but it closed opening night, which I like that book a lot. I don't want to imagine what it's like to adapt that as a full play. The movie's great, but I can't imagine it on stage. Yeah. He would also work with Neil Steinman uh, on The Last of the Red Hot Lovers, uh, which Simon wrote specifically for him. So I think one of the things about Coco is there were a number of playwrights that liked writing for him specifically. And while he might like he's one of the guest stars that I didn't know about before I watched his episode. But I do think Neil Gaiman's got that two thirds principle of you've got to be good at what you do. You've got to be easy to work with and you have to get things done on time. If you do two thirds of that, then you're going to be people are going to keep giving you work. And I think Coco, I don't think he's bad, um, but I do think that he was someone that people enjoyed interacting with and he probably showed up and he did his job very well. He would pass on February 25th, 1987, at St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan. He died after suffering a heart attack in his home. Uh, he's been buried at St. Gertrude's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Colonia, New Jersey. He didn't make a big impression on me. I I thought of him mostly by comparison, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a little bit. Yeah. I don't think it's a bad episode. I just don't think it's going to stand out. Give me, give me one adjective uh, uh one professional adjective to ascribe to him what would you call him just an actor yeah he's an actor um i would okay. say that that is what he is primarily okay i think he was on stage more than screen i i do have some screen credits for him but by and large i think that a lot of what he did was on and off broadway he would be in uh, the muppets take manhattan he's not in the muppet movie and he also played sancho panza in the man of la mancha in 1972 Muppet Show, episode 312, featuring guest star James Coco, was produced between May 2nd and May 5th, 1978. It would premiere in the UK on December 8th of the same year, and in the United States on October 12th of the same year. It was directed by Philip Casson and written by those same guys that we know. Um, we open with Coco in wardrobe asking Scooter to have the wardrobe press his jacket, at which point the wardrobe pins him to the floor. <laughs> Yeah, just yeah, right top of. I mean, the Muppet Show is going to be a bit of a monkey's paw. You got to be real specific. <laughs> yeah, we see Beauregard during the Muppet theme again, and I think is this like again. three in a row? At least two. Yeah, uh, he has the script ready, but it flies all over the place. And then poor Gonzo getting ready to blow the trumpet has four trumpets blare from each angle around him because. You got to keep Gonzo on his toes. Nick, I have a question. I, I think we have the same question, but go ahead. Why does a frog wear a bathing cap? There we go. I don't know. Mm. Uh, <laughs> okay. Because he's got to take care of his hair? I. <laughs> My entire family had the same question all at the same time, too. <laughs> I mean, we've seen Kermit in water without a cap before. Is he trying to do moisturizing thing? Is he trying to, like... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We, we open with... Uh, Kermit introducing the show and describing the opening underwater number and telling us that the last one in is a sissy, um, which, you know, people jumping into pools, you get the idea. Uh, you know, we probably wouldn't use that phrase these days. No, but, but as a kid in the 90s, you would have heard that. 
Oh, absolutely. In seventies, eighties, nineties, absolutely. Uh, this episode does come with a cultural content warning. Should probably mention that ahead of time before we get started. I don't think it's because of the last one is a sissy, but it just reminded me that there are some questionable things in the episode. We all know why soon enough. We open with a Robin number, which I think we haven't done up to this point. Well, Robin and Kermit. It yeah, but Robin's Robin's pulling the steam for this one. We get it's it incorporates a lot of the other Muppets, but. Yeah. This is a Robin vehicle, and he's not doing something particularly maudlin at the moment. It's No, it's the freaking Beatles, Nick. He sings the freaking Beatles. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. (laughs) He let us in, knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade. He sings Octopus's Garden, but it's still Robin's doing it, and he's still doing that in that little kid voice. So there's there's a little yeah. bit of it there, but it's not anywhere near on the same level that we would usually get. This number's trippy. It is. It's a little bit. Everyone's underwater. Miss Piggy's there, getting ready to harass Kermit again because their love knows no terrain advantage or disadvantage. Yeah, she's 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 a mermaid. Yeah, and the animal shows up with like a scuba tank. I think this is the first time I've seen Animal run away from anything. <laughs> animal gets chased by a stingray. Yeah. yeah. He does not enjoy it. <laughs> uh, it I, I thought that too. We would sing and dance around because we know we can't be found. I'd like to be under the sea in an Octopus's Garden is a famous Beatles song, not because it ruled the airwaves, but because it's written by Ringo Starr and it's batshit. The Muppets have used this before. They've sung it on Sesame Street, and then I covered this when I did the Ed Sullivan episode. They did Octopus's Garden on Ed Sullivan in a similar type sketch. Not as technically impressive as this one, and I'm not going to say this one holds up too well, but still on a lesser version of this one. It feels more expansive. I think this the theme, weirdly, of the season is expanding and incorporating more in sketch by sketch. And I, we've seen a lot of that with him, like, smashing sketches together. If this sketch were done season one or season two, Miss Piggy wouldn't have been there and Animal wouldn't have been there unless they had singing parts. But it's, it's a nice one. I still don't know why Kermit needs a swim cup. With no one there to tell us what to do. <laughs> We go backstage where Kermit, always thinking ahead, calls to action the follow-up act, which is the dancing sponges, to clean up all of the water from the previous number. He did this last week, remember, where he had the mop act? Mm-hmm. We'll see if it persists. Like, once and twice isn't the worst thing, but... Twice is lazy, three times is a runner. Fair. But also, these we're watching these in the order that they were filmed. Did these premiere, like, right after each other in either case? It was syndicated, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> It really does depend on where you lived at the time. Oh, you were great in that last number, Piggy. Oh, thank you, Kermit. You know, I really like the water. Well, I'm glad. Mm-hmm. Which means after we're married, we can live at your place. Yeah, she'll live at his place. She's not joking. There's no tongue-in-cheek. There's there's only... Just, just mountains of presumption. And to quote 
Miss Piggy herself temptation. But now she's speaking openly about it, though. Ever since they did that, like, almost fake wedding, now it's... And now that Piggy's, like, the star of the show, they're doing a lot more of that. Oh. Like, when we're married, Kermie, and he doesn't, like, flip out or anything. He's just like, eh. In, in Piggy's eyes, it's not a question of if, but when. But then we, we, exactly. do, we do get to our first probable cause for a content warning. Yeah. Where we see Fozzie go to see a psychic uh, because Fozzie Bear has no future. Um, and our guest star, uh, who's... It's kind of dark. Kermit says that. It's kind of dark. A little bit, but it's also... It's on brand. I mean, having no future is very... It's very ominous. James is playing the the medium, and he unveils his crystal ball, which has Beauregard's head stuck in it. Well, before we get to that, he's playing... He's playing a gypsy. That's why it's probably got a content warning, right? I've got to know one thing. Yes, I can. Can you predict the future? I just did. I want to know what my future in romance will be. Let me see if my crystal ball will speak to me. You had a theory on this. Why is it the 70s were so obsessed with gypsies? Stevie Nicks. I'm assuming. At least one of my grandmas was super into seances and at least one of them, and I'm not sure if both of them were super into Stevie Nicks and the way that she presented herself as a gypsy woman and how it was also transient and romantic. It's all I could think of during this was this is probably inappropriate and Peter Sellers did it better. He absolutely did. But also the the way that that scene was set. It's very different. Yeah. I don't know if it's fair to call it more organic. Yeah. No, this is just a this is a sketch. This is a comedy sketch. Yeah. A ghost shows up partway through, which I, I did like this part of it. Um, in that, that they actually got a real ghost. Well, not that. <laughs> yes, they got a real ghost. But that James played up not expecting that to be the case or that it should be there, and he wasn't trying to wrap it yeah. in or do anything else like that. He's just like, uh, no, nah, this isn't. I just wanted your money. They're visited by the ghost of Chester Pugh, who was supposed to be on his way to a different seance. Which I feel like seances were a semi-regular, like a much bigger deal in the seventies. Yeah, between that and Ouija boards. Mm-hmm. I had one of those. Never said shit. <laughs> yeah, some of my more religious family members get real uncomfortable around those. <laughs> I, I refuse to be scared by anything that's made by Parker Brothers. Yeah, I don't know. Monopoly can feel a little real at times. But when he finds out that he's on TV, he sends a special message to his loved ones by singing Danny Boy, which is a Northern Irish love song. Huh? No good. Why? Well, just no rhythm, no pace. Not even good looking. Jimmy? Hmm? Jimmy, is, is this supposed to go this way? No, of course not. I didn't know we'd get a real ghost. Nick, I am, uh, I got some German in me. I got some Scottish. To my knowledge, I have no Irish in me whatsoever. I am somewhere around a quarter Irish. I all of a sudden feel pride when someone sings Danny Boy, and I don't know why. I just think it's beautiful. <laughs> I I don't know the words to it properly. <laughs> Part of it is it's in uh, it's a very prominent in Miller's Crossing, the great Coen Brothers movie. Hmm. There's something about Danny Boy that actually gets to me. I'm not a I'm not Irish. I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a cop. <laughs> I'm not a gangster from a 1940s movie. I don't know why Danny Boy gets to me, but Danny Boy gets to me. Oh, Danny Boy, oh Danny Boy, I love you so. 
room there, we uh, we didn't see Sam during the Raquel Welch episode at all. I know. Big miss there. Big missed opportunity. I don't think it is. I think that Sam was worried about also becoming part of that male god that's like, oh, wait, this woman's here. And then Sam would be very uncomfortable as he discovered certain feelings. I love the Fozzie storyline with Raquel, so I would not change that for the world. Mm. But in an alternate timeline, I would like to see this that her story was with Sam. Sam, appalled by the sketch, uh, decides that it's time for him to leave the show. He's he's had all he can stands and he can't stands no more. And nobody cares. Floyd's there and he's very, very careful about letting him know that he doesn't care. That does it, I am leaving. Well, don't you have anything to say to me before I go? Uh, oh, yeah. Mm. On your way out, would you empty the garbage? I do like where Sam's like, I'm done. I'm leaving. And I'm like, you're not. We know for a fact that you're not supposed to be there in the first place. He's going to go and hang out with Dottler and Waldorf. But yeah, that's where he should be. He decides that he's going to stay when he sees that Rolf is about to play a tribute to Ludwig van Beethoven, which is Sam's favorite playwright <laughs> okay now they've done that joke before too but i don't consider that one lazy i think it's funny they did that with nureyev remember nureyev was his favorite opera singer oh yeah no i think that's just a, a character track with sam because he's cultured he's real cultured we see rolf and i don't think the candelabra was there this time it's been replaced by a bust of beethoven and he plays a song called eight little notes uh, which was written by Larry Grossman and Hal Hackaday. Uh, Eight Little Notes was an, originally featured in Snoopy the Musical. Uh, it's our second Snoopy the Musical song on The Muppet Show, with our first being Just One Person. All he had was eight little notes, just eight little notes, but oh, what Mr. B did with do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do, though. All he used were eight little notes, just eight, count them eight like these. He'd mix and match and hatch a batch of catchy melodies. Now I could take two notes and come up with nothing of note. Mr. B took a G and a flattened E and wrote. Wasn't that fantastic? Now, this one was written for the show and not performed. And for a second there, I wasn't sure why. And then I just realized Larry Grossman. So Grossman, who is one of the music writers on The Muppet Show, was one of the co-writers of Snoopy the Musical. Got it. And so this song, I'm going to guess this song would have been played by Schroeder, right? Would have been sung by Schroeder. And uh, yeah, they were able to port it over to this, which is really cool. I mean, I like Beethoven and I I like Rolf. Yeah. What did you think of the Beethoven bus kind of coming to life, though? It should have been Nightmare Fuel, but I saw it coming a mile away. It reminded me a little bit of the President's. Remember the the Mount Rushmore Uh bit? Though all he had was eight little notes, just eight little notes like these. Which goes to show that one man's scale is another man's symphonies. It's just about the musical scale and about a love of Beethoven. Yeah. Um, I'm still unlearning that whenever Rolf's at the piano, it's not actually the UK spot. And it felt a little bit like that, except we had the lead in. This next is the UK spot, though. And man, is it trippy. I think, I think someone goes on an ayahuasca trip. It's it's something, man. It's something. So Kermit's tucking Robin in and Robin says that he can't sleep because he's afraid of snakes, which to be fair, snakes probably eat frogs. So I can see that. Kermit has him imagine the beauty of snakes, which is a weird way to call the void, but it's a choice that was made. (laughs) 
And Robin <laughs> envisions a quartet of snakes that are dancing around to an upbeat version of a song called In a Persian Market. Which was uh, a piece of like classical music for orchestra uh, by Albert Kettleby, and it was composed in 1920. It, invo- it evokes images of camel drivers and jugglers and snake charmers, like what you would expect to see in a bazaar. This was the other one that I tagged maybe as the cultural content warning, just because it's called In a Persian Market, although you don't actually know that when you're watching it. But yeah, it, it could go one of a couple of ways. It does have this kind of snake charmer feel to it, though, which is very ethnically coded, I guess, you know? Yeah, that's just it. As we we see, it's not quite a technical sketch like we would have seen before, but we do see a quartet of snakes that are just sort of dancing and wriggling around. I think it's a technical sketch with a with a framing device. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. But it's weird. Yeah, like, and I like weird, but it, it was a little. I, I I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't couldn't put my um couldn't put my finger on why it didn't really work for me, but it didn't. It's it's not bad. It's probably a UK spot for a reason. Although there is that cute beat at the end, though, when they wake up, when they come out of the fantasy and Kermit's like, you're not afraid of snakes anymore, are you? And he's like, no, they're nice. And all the snakes are all of a sudden in the bedroom. Yeah, I feel like that turns into a horror movie as soon as we cut. But yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We go backstage for, I guess, what is the beginning of the backstage story? It doesn't, it's one note. It doesn't feel very strong. I think. No, there's not one really. James Coco, to call back to an earlier episode, he reminds me a little bit of Harvey Corman. He plays better with the Muppets than Corman did, but I don't think he has the same degree of gravitas or maybe even necessarily the comedic timing that Corman would have had. He's not not funny, but also... But he's also not funny. It's... He reminded me of like, um, and I don't, you're going to be insulted by this. He reminded me of Dom DeLuise, but nowhere close. Yeah, nowhere he's, close. he's not. The thing is, outside of The Muppet Show, uh, Corman and DeLuise were comparable. But on the show, DeLuise was a significantly better cast than Corman <laughs> he's was. He's one of the best. Yeah, he's one of the best. And Coco's somewhere in between. But I think that if Corman had come on during season two or three rather than during season one, he would have done a much better job. I mean, you only need razzle-dazzle if you've got a dull, slow-moving act, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I have been watching this show. It is dynamic. It is full of sex appeal. It is fast-paced. You do not need razzle-dazzle. You have... You've got... <laughs> what is that? The next act. You need razzle-dazzle. And then the Swedish chef just sort of wanders by singing a slow tune, and James decides that, despite the fact that he just told Kermit that the show is efficient enough that it doesn't need razzle-dazzle, that he thinks that it needs razzle-dazzle. And that's kind of all it is. Like, that's that's kind of the entire backstage story. It bleeds onto the front of the stage some of the time. But it's just, I mean, we're, I guess we're coming down from Raquel Welch, and we just want to see girls. Coco wants to add more girls to the show. Yeah. Um, if the show's bad, if you put attractive women out front, people will probably watch it, which I it's mean, not it's wrong. not a progressive <laughs> mind state, but I've fallen for that before. So I, yeah, yeah, it's a thing. I watched six years of Dawson's Creek cause of Katie Holmes. <laughs> uh, but we go to our Swedish chef sketch and he's getting ready to prepare a banana split with his ax. <laughs> Yeah. 
It's hard to say banana in mock Swedish. If he was a minion, he'd have an easier time. <laughs> yeah, he keeps elongating it. It's really funny. Banana, 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 banana. A group of Spanish dancers comes out every so often, and he hits a pot on his head. He sends the and he sends the axe flying, and then eventually he just decides to give up and solve his own problem. He throws a banana peel on the floor for the dancers to slip on. That was funny. I, you just see him getting progressively more irritated. Like I am out here as a professional, and they keep doing this. This is the this is a, I think the third thing I marked that could have been a cultural content warning, just because they were uh, stereotypically Spanish dancers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I still think my my guess is that first number. That first one is the most overt. Of course, then he ends up with a with a, an axe in his head. So or in his sorry in his in his pot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have a Wayne without Wanda sketch, but we go backstage right before that starts. So we could get the setup for the one note joke again that says we need some more girls, girls, dancers. There is a moment too, though, where the chef comes off and he's got the ax in his head and mm-hmm. Coco looks at Kermit and goes, is he going to be okay? And Kermit's like, I doubt it. He never has been. <laughs> Kermit can go with the flow. We see Wayne go on for what is a classic Wayne and Wanda sketch just without Wanda. Wayne sings a song called Catch a Falling Star, which the beginning of the sketch, you just see like a sparkler zoom toward his pants or something. Um, and Scooter, ever helpful, yeah, yeah. comes on and says, uh, the star is burning his pants. And then a clown pig extinguishes him. And the dancers come back along with a couple of snakes. And Did you imagine you'd ever have to say, a cl- then the clown pig extinguishes him in your life? Just saying on the list of sentences you thought you'd say one day and record it. And so we go backstage again. We we spend more time backstage this episode than I think we usually do. That's because his storyline, they decided that his storyline was going to be he's trying to help Kermit jazz up the show, right? So you got to spend more time backstage, I think. Yeah, with like the one note. Um, but yeah, Kermit describes the next sketch and James thinks, you know what this needs? Girls. Girls. <laughs> and so... You should think of, I think you should think of these scenes with Coco as his second number, Mm -hmm. right? This is his second number. He probably could have swapped it out for a better one, but I agree. We, we get our veterinarian's hospital where the crew is actually going to take out the appendix of one of the Spanish dancers, but chorus girls keep cutting in and Dr. Bob. I've changed my mind. I am not taking out the appendix. What are you taking out? The blonde on the end. <laughs> is one of the most Rolf things you could say is just. Rolf's just, your, just a dude, man. <laughs> Wait till you get to the Muppet movie. Rolf's got a couple of lines in the Muppet movies. Like, he's just a dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a veterinarian's hospital. It, it's exactly like the Swedish chef thing, right? It keeps getting interrupted. The idea is Coco is taking over, this, over the show. And he wants to add this pizzazz to their already to their previous sketches, right? So he the thing is Swedish chef. He added dancers. He's added dancing girls to veterinarian's hospital, right? But but you're right. It's the same joke over and over again. Repetition in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It can actually be a tool if it's used well. But it has to be dynamic, and there has to be some sort of a pivot on it, or it has to do something different. I think if I met James Coco, he would have been someone that I liked hanging out with. Sure, he seems fine. 
as our guests go, I will be surprised if he or any of the sketches from this episode make it onto our end of season list. You're not into short people? Well, he's not going to make my short list. <laughs> yeah. But actually, that's a good segue, though, because we get into our final bit. I would really like, I'd like a change of pace. I'd like, I'd like to do something simple, you know, something small. Yeah, but, but closing numbers are big extravaganzas. No, 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 small, small, Kermit. No, 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 small. Small. Just, yeah, but with no, no, really, no, current, really small. Really small. Yeah, small. Small. Right, trust me. Backed by a band of short Muppets in what looks like it, everything about that set made me think televangelist, but I don't know why. Yeah, or, or like a children's show. Yeah. The band is weird, though, because Menomina is in the band. Gonzo's canonically short, and he wasn't there. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason. Short people got no reason to live. They got little hands and little eyes, and they go around telling great big lies. They got little noses and tiny little teeth. They wear platform shoes on their tiny little feet. Well, I don't want no short people. I don't want no short people. I don't want no short people out here. James comes on, he sings a song called Short People, which was written by Randy Newman from his 1977 album Little Criminals, which would have been relatively current, but the, uh, he's, and he doesn't do a bad job with it. He It's a popular song. He does a decent job. It just, it doesn't, it's a capstone without a lot of buildup. I just hate the song. It's not. I hate short people. I, I, I like Randy, <laughs> I like, <laughs> I like 1970s, we'll clip that. I like 1970s Randy Newman quite a bit, but Short People is like the one song of his I can't stand because it just kind of comes across as mean and it, I don't see the point of it. They got little cars that go beep, beep, beep. They got little voices going beep, beep, beep. A grubby little fingers and dirty little minds. They're going to get you every time. I don't want no short people. Yeah, I could see this being either him thinking that he was particularly clever in the moment or him being strapped for ideas. I don't think it's anything in between. It was a big song for him. I think it was clever. I think it was popular. I just, to me, I, listening to it now, I was kind of like, all it's, uh, short people got no reason to live. Like, what does that even mean? Um, Other than the worst interpretation of it, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's tongue in cheek, but I'm still saying short people suck. You know, it's, it's real weird. Yeah. Um, feel like he was important to Toy Story. When the road looks rough ahead and you're miles and miles from your nice warm bed, you just remember what your past is. Boy, you got a remedy. But uh, I, I, I agree with you. I think he does a good job. I don't think it is the number that I would have picked. I don't particularly like the song, the set, I get what they're going for, but it just gives me a toothache. Like it just looks like Candyland. Joel Osteen and a makeup counter in a department store. Like, which is not who you want to run into in a department store. Oh, um, but, uh, yeah, but it was okay. And we, we go back after and Kermit informs all of us that the short people aren't mad at, which again, that could be another content warning reason. <laughs> Maybe. The, the short people have no grievance with James after their number, but they then take Kermit and start hurling him into the air. I I wish 
Like, the thing is, there are episodes that we've had strong negative feelings about. There are episodes we've had strong positive feelings about. This one... It's kind of a wash. Yeah. Like, it's... I don't think he's a bad guest, per se, so much as he's not a good one. And that sounds like I'm damning with false praise, which isn't my intention, but... I also think it's not a great episode that he's given. Hmm. He doesn't... He did not write this episode. Mm-hmm. While he may not be a super great guest star, I also don't think in this case the material helped him out. Mm-hmm. So I just think it's a mediocre episode, and that's fine. Without mediocre episodes, you don't know what the great ones are, and you don't know what the bad ones are. Like, I'm not mad at this episode, nor am I going to go watch it again <laughs> anytime soon. Yeah, that's a good way to discuss it. Next time, whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive. So next time, we're only covering one episode, Nick. We're only covering episode 313, because after 313 is when The Muppet Show takes a break, leaves England, and comes back to the United States to make their first feature-length motion picture. So next week, we're going to cover episode 313 with special guest star singer Helen Reddy. And then we are going to, we're going to talk about a little bit about the lead up to The Muppet Movie. And how it came to be, and 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 um, the next episode after that, we'll be talking about the Muppet movie, and uh, it'll be a good time. But so next week will probably be a shorter episode. It's just going to be Helen Reddy. Are you ready for Helen Reddy? I am ready for Helen Reddy. Please check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring. Um, and um, yeah, that's all we got for the night. But uh, Muppet movie, very excited. Um, my name is Chad. My name is Nick. Thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podowitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Have you ever thought there must be life after death? Every time I leave this theater. <laughs> <laughs> oh.